So the summer break, I'm delighted to welcome you back to the podcast series from Square Mile, Behind the Screens, hosted by me, Jock Glover, the Strategic Relationships Director here at Square Mile Investment Consulting and Research. In this series of podcasts, we continue to meet members of the investment teams from across the asset management industry, whose funds we rate, and spend 15 minutes or so chatting to them to get some insight into their thinking. This week, I'm delighted to welcome into the hot seat Andre Pioch, who is the lead fund manager of the multi-index range at Legal and General Investment Management. Andre manages, amongst other funds, the LNG multi-index range of funds that Square Mile analysts recommend. And this range of funds aims to provide a combination of growth and income and to keep the funds within a predetermined risk profile. So, Andre, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Jack. Thank you for having me. Well, pleasure. Nice, to, nice of you to have uh, to join us. Um, now, am I correct in thinking you've just had the tenth anniversary of the multi-index funds? That's right. Yes. So the range launched in two thousand thirteen in August. So we just had a little celebration in the office uh, to mark this occasion. And over that ten-year period, what's sort of what what stands out in your memory is sort of some really good things that have happened with the range, and, and maybe one or two not so good things. I think one of the things that really stuck with me was my first multi-index roadshow that we did. Uh, and it was really fascinating to meet advisors all around the UK from all corners of the country, really, um, get their feedback. And it made me realize basically two things. First, that we do have something unique to offer when it comes to multi-index proposition. But the second thing is also we need to always challenge ourselves on how we communicate it, how we actually reach the advisors, how we explain the benefits of the funds, um, and how important that dialogue with advisors really is. Um, so I think since then, since that first roadshow, I was always having on the back of my mind that kind of question of how we can better talk about what we do, not just how we can better do what we do in terms of fund management. And, and on the other side of the, the coin, you know, 10 years, we've had some interesting markets over 10 years. Has there been anything that you thought, oh, crikey, <laughs> what, what, why, why me, why now, what, what, what on I, earth are we going to do? I mean, it's, it's incredible how many events you can squeeze in a 10-year period, <laughs> how many. Uh, we had a pandemic, we had um, so many different national elections, number of prime ministers, US presidents. Uh, I think the one thing that it always teaches you is no matter how many degrees you have or qualifications you studied for exams you passed, the markets always find a way to remind you about what you don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and kind of also tell you about the importance of staying humble. Um, I do love structure and predictability in my life in general. And I think it's quite ironic that I chose this career because financial markets, when it comes to predictability, it's a completely different story. But I think I like the challenge on how to navigate this. Yeah, I, I, I think it was the, the, the quote was attributed to Mark Twain. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's history 
um, never repeats itself, but it rhymes. And that, that I always think for mm. financial markets, at that point about learning something the whole time, you, you, it, there are lessons to be learned, but there's always new stuff going on. It's, it, it's very much the case, isn't it? Yeah, it would be interesting what rhymes we're going to see in the next decade now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've um, now been running these funds for, for 10 years. You've obviously got a team of uh, fund managers and analysts around you that help you. How do you split your time in a normal day in terms of doing work on the desk, internal meetings, all that sort of stuff, managing people, managing the team? How do you, how do you manage a day? Mm. So I do like to start early. I usually wake up just after four, maybe 4.30 in winter. Um, And these often are my, what I call like pre-thinking hours until I'm in the office by 7.30. Going for a swim also helps just to clear my head and kind of plan ahead. So by the time I'm in the office, I have a clearer idea of what my priorities are for the day. And I think that's important because the moment that the markets open, there is so much data to absorb and so many different pieces of information to analyze. And I think the key is then to learn what to pay attention to and what to prioritize. And that's what I use these first few hours in the day for. Now, we start the day with macro meetings. Um, so there is first meeting at 8 o'clock for all people across the investment floor. Then we have a team meeting at 8.45. Um, and given how top-down macro-driven our investment process is, I think understanding that macro picture is really important. And then in terms of the rest of the day, mornings are all about the portfolios, making sure that the funds are in the right shape, that we reflect all the latest views from our strategists and economists in the funds, uh, that we stay on top of the fund's risk, And then I try to carve out a few hours in the afternoon when it gets a little bit quiet or quieter, relatively Mm -hmm. speaking, um, on some more long-term strategic thinking. And at the moment, it's largely around all different waves of regulation that are coming our way and how that may shape our proposition, but also what that means for our clients and how we can help them navigate that because we're all basically in the same boat when it comes to regulation. Um, so, so when you're thinking about the portfolios and the funds in the morning uh, and having those conversations with the team, you obviously you run to it, you've got a strategic asset allocation you run to, and then those mm. conversations are being that you're having with the macro uh, guys, the economists, et cetera, that's driving the more tactical, what do we need to tweak, what do we need to adjust within the portfolios? Is that, that that's how you're working that? Yeah, exactly. because. We use primarily index funds to populate our asset allocation, but it doesn't mean that our approach to the asset allocation itself is in any way passive or slow moving. Any day, we have the ability to adjust that asset allocation. Now, we're not necessarily adding trades that we will look to take off in two, three days from now. So it's not kind of the traditional tactical overlay. We have this medium-term investment horizon in mind, but when you have the volatility as you do now, I think it's really important that you have that flexibility to respond. Uh, And so give me an example of the sort of 
um thinking you talk about your thinking hours first thing in the morning you then obviously have the internal meetings and you're thinking about the regulatory environments and how that might help give me sort of an example what might cause you to significantly change the positioning within the portfolio given that you're buying index funds so you're going to say i'm going to go you know massively underweight uk equities and massively overweight us what what are the sort of the triggers that investors might be interested to hear that because obviously there's some stuff you just well that's noise i'll leave it because i'm happy where Mm. i am what's the sort of stuff that triggers a, a decision then yeah so the main things the main risks for the portfolio for a multi-asset fund like ours, it's the equity positioning, duration positioning, and then exposure to sterling versus overseas currencies. So we've been very busy over last, actually, yeah, the last 12 months looking at our duration exposure. And it all started towards the end of September last year with the guilt crisis and a big spike in the guilt yields. Interestingly, what that meant is suddenly some asset classes that weren't really investable in in the past, like the UK linkers, started to become interesting. So we added those quite quickly into the funds, uh, and they were in the portfolios by the end of September. And then more recently, we also have been adding to US inflation-linked securities. And that's because when you look at the level of real yields, we don't think the economy can actually um, stomach such high levels of real yield. So we expect them to come down. Hence, we've been adding to those US tips that benefit from lower real yields in the future. Okay. And what keeps you up at night? Because you know, if I was having a chat with one of the equities managers or a bond manager, they'd be Worrying about, you know, are the government's going to move interest rates further than I'd expect, or is, you know, Tesco's going to have a profits warning tomorrow? But you're obviously looking at it from a different perspective. So, what what keeps you awake at night? What makes you worried? Although mm. you know, in the morning, I'm morning. I'm not sure you, you get much <laughs> sleep. Um, but there we go. No, I also go to bed quite early. Um, so, yeah, I think given the equity being that largest risk it will have to be the risk of recession at the moment. Yeah. Because we know that that may then impact the returns of the funds. Now, the jury is still out, whether we're going to face a hard landing or soft landing, particularly in the US. Uh, but for me, when you look at what's happening to wages, it's hard for central banks to engineer a scenario where they can cool those wages without the unemployment going up. Mm. And then at the same time, you have banks, which got a little bit spooked through March and April this year, and tightened the credit conditions. Uh, And the economy needs banks to continue to provide lending to support growth. So that could be another thing that could lead to recession. And yeah, that would be on top of our agenda at the moment. So it's that tightrope that the central banks and governments are currently walking at the moment, trying to work out how to manage the inflation going forward, even though it is dropping in places, but keep managing it without making it too painful for everyone else on the way through. Yeah, and in a way, last year, it was easier for them because inflation was, in some places, in double digits. So their policy to continue to hike was 
clearly communicated. Everybody expected that, yeah. and and they just pressed on. Now it gets a little bit trickier because it's still above their mandate, but is it high enough above that target uh, to continue to hike, or is it sufficient to just hold the rates where they are? Yeah. Hence, every meeting will become a hotly debated discussion. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you about some other funds that you're involved in. Um, so just before COVID, I think it was, um, maybe 2019, you launched the Energy Future Worlds ESG multi-index funds. There's a couple of them mm. you launched. Um, how do they differ from the more mainstream strategies we've been talking about up until now in terms of what makes them more ESG or future world? Yeah, so over these 10 years in multi-index history, we realized that there is a space in the market for funds that go further when it comes to ESG, but do not sacrifice certain benefits that served investors over the years, like risk targeting, diversification, or cost-effectiveness. Because in the past, a lot of the ESG strategies tend to be dominated by active funds, mm -hmm. which will be more concentrated and often also more expensive. So we thought, why don't we use the five pillars of our original multi-index funds and apply them to construct an ESG proposition? So still use index funds, still provide that diversification and cost-effectiveness, but what happens is that the index funds themselves will tilt towards companies with better ESG credentials, not exclude a quarter okay. or a third of your investment universe, but just move towards a better ESG profile. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the rest is quite similar in terms of providing access to a wide range of asset classes, dynamically adjusting asset allocation, but these building blocks will be quite different. Okay, cool. Thank you. Right. Um, we're getting towards a time where we're going to be told we're running out of time. So I'm going to ask you one last question, um, which is my favorite question every week when I have these uh, discussions with people. Um, have you got an interesting statistic from the last week or two that you could share with mm. the listeners? Uh, and why do you think it's interesting? I think it will have to be payrolls and not because of the specific level that they were in but just how many revisions we're now getting from the historical levels. So the markets are very much focused on every single payroll print. But then what we're also faced with is that in every single month this year, they came out and actually revised the previous prints downward by over 300,000 workers at the moment. Um, and then at the same time, when you look at what's happening in the US and the labor force there, uh, we have a lot of people also coming back into the labor force, um, mm. which really complicates the picture on the tightness of the labor market and again makes the job of central bankers so much more difficult. Uh, so I would, while the market will continue to monitor payrolls each month, I think we always have to then remember not to depend too much on single data points because they get constantly revised and it's like walking a little bit through the fog at the moment. 
so so that that backward looking changing and reassessing and uh is just making it more difficult to understand the current picture with the payrolls <laughs> exactly when yeah. you look at june we got 200,000 payrolls back then now they've been revised to just over 100,000 yeah and who knows what the market reaction would have been if we got 100,000 print back yeah. in june yeah um so it's a lot of back and, and forth but the market isn't reacting to the the changes because obviously there's the new one that comes out so <laughs> yes. it's it's reacting to the new one but not to the old one which would be better or worse news but they're they're reacting to the new one which might change like the old one did exactly and i think market struggles to properly then incorporate those adjustments from the past and it's yeah. so focused on just the most recent um release yeah brilliant well um thank you very much indeed for your time today andre i mean all that remains for me uh, is to thank you uh, for your thoughts and your insights um and once again to thank the listeners for their support um i say this every time we do a podcast um no one has done it yet maybe you don't get to the end of it and you've never heard me say it but if you would like to contact us please do so through either our webpage at www.squaremileresearch.com or by emailing us at info at squaremileresearch.com. This podcast is only aimed at professional advisors and regulated firms and should not be passed on to or relied upon by any other persons. It is not intended for retail investors who should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this podcast. Remembering past performance is not an indication of future performance. It is published by and remains the copyright of Squaremore Investment Consulting and Research. Squaremore makes no warranties or representations regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. This podcast represents the views and forecasts of Squaremore at the date of issue and may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. Nothing in this podcast shall be deemed to constitute a regulated activity or an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity, and it is not a recommendation to buy or sell any funds or investments that are mentioned during this podcast. Thank you.